Hello, good evening. Uh, welcome to another Wednesday evening. It's a Wednesday evening interview. Uh, this evening we are blessed to have Aya Santusika and Aya Chetananda. Uh, Venerables, thank you so much for, for joining us this evening. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Um, so we'll just read a quick bio of each of you. But uh, so this is Aya Santusika on viewers left. Um, born in Illinois in 1954, Aya Santusika began exploring meditation in the late 70s. She received a BS and an MS degrees in computer science while being a sing single mother. After working as a software designer and developer for 15 years in the Bay Area, she trained as an interfaith minister and received a Master's of Divinity degree in 2002. She visited monasteries in the US, Europe, and Asia, learning from master teachers, mostly in the Ajahn Chah lineage, in which her son, a former Gunawudo, David, was ordained. He was one of my teachers, my early teachers. Uh, in 2012, she received full ordination as a bhikkhuni and hence founded the Karuna Buddhist Vihara, a neighborhood Theravada Buddhist monastery for bhikkhunis. And uh, Ayachitananda was inspired to follow the Buddhist path in 2005 after a college philosophy class. After completing a bachelor's of science in nursing and working as a registered nurse in Texas, she lived as a monastic at a small Pureland Chan monastery in Florida. She spent time practicing at monasteries in England and Scotland and at Aloka Vihar in Placerville, California. She took Anagarika precepts at Karuna Buddhist Vihar in March of 2015, seminary ordination in April of 2016, and bhikkhuni ordination in May of 2018 at Budi Vihar at Santa Clara, California. And we've had the ayas up to visit us numerous times and have gotten ever closer to memorizing permanently those bios, but we aren't quite there yet. But um, for those who don't know, Ayas Santusik and Ayajitananda have been, um, they're Clear Mountains Bhikkhuni advisors. They are uh, such deep friends and sisters and guides um, to us. We're so grateful. We get to have them visit later in June. And we kind of realized about a month ago that we hadn't actually gotten to have them on the Wednesday live stream. So Ayas, thank you so much for joining us and for your friendship. So Aya Santusika, uh, this is somewhat of a special week on Monday that was your birthday. So um, in your most recent Dhamma talk, you give some really nice reflections in which you say, the body is 70 years old, but the mind is not aging. The mind is not aging. I'm curious if you would be able to maybe just start off on this year birthday week, just sharing a bit more reflections on that of mm -hmm. aging body, but non aging mind? Well, of course, the aging body part is really obvious. And that's a, a huge resource for reflection on impermanence, suffering and not self, all of it, all of the three characteristics. And this investigation of what is the mind? What is chitta and very different Kind of ex descriptions and um, teachings about it that we see coming from the Thai forest tradition. The forest masters have a different way of talking about chitta sometimes than, say, the traditional text, the commentary. And 
one of the things that struck me recently was um, a Dhamma sharing or Dhamma talk that Ajahn Purudamo gave to the bhikkhunis talking about time. And he pointed out that the, this, this um, <clears throat> difference in the way that Thai forest masters talk about the chitta, because, you know, like Ajahn Gunha said, you know, the chitta never dies. And I said, what do you mean by that? <laughs> and he said, if you ask that question, you're still confused, which I felt was <laughs> probably true based on the different kinds of descriptions and teachings that people give. But with this uh, discussion with Ajahn Punadamo in talking about time, um, we actually, uh, I, was, I was able to share with him that long ago in my meditation, there was a time when it became clear to me that time was a mere convention just to help us keep track of what we're doing and how we're relating to each other and living our life. We, we kind of need to see past, present, and future, but it's possible in meditation to recognize that that's a mere convention. And in an altered state of consciousness, we might know that there is this, this kind of state outside of time. And that's what Ajahn Purnadamo was talking about. He said that we can think of the chitta as outside of time. It's never born, it never dies. It's outside of time. And when I think about it, the mind, if I think about that as the mind, that's not what I what we're talking about when we think, oh, the mind ages, it gets forgetful, it may get dementia, it may have Alzheimer's, it may, you know, deteriorate in many ways, but that's not actually the mind, it's actually the brain. It's a physical problem. It's part of the body. The brain is part of the body and that belongs to nature and that is decaying and, and falling apart and is gonna completely fall apart um, one day and not be able to sustain life anymore. It's not gonna be able to sustain or um, <clears throat> serve as a, a vehicle for the mind because the mind is is using the brain the body and the senses all the khandas really for taking action in the world for doing anything mm -hmm. but the mind itself separates from the body at the point when the body disintegrates or deteriorates and then we start to see interesting phenomena like when people get really close to death a lot of times, even if they've had incredible confusion, memory loss, um, not be able to recognize their relatives for a long time, it's it happens frequently that very close to death, they'll be able to name everyone, speak cogently, talk about serious matters, and then die. And I refer to Ajahn Brahm because he has a lot of um, interest in this whole area, and he talks about how he believes that that's when the mind is actually separating from the body and therefore it doesn't have to operate through that um, kind of mess of a brain that's been aging and deteriorating. Hmm. So I really 
I this really rings true for me. It rings true based on things I've experienced in meditation. It rings true based on the teachings that I really trust from the Krubhajans. And to recognize this, that the mind isn't aging. The mind isn't, we want to say, what we're calling mind here, it's not, a, it's not in the khandas. And that, you know, there's, there's a, always the, the effort to um, remove the defilements so that the mind is clear and the mind is pure and we can live um, really relying on the wisdom of the mind and that, you know, re realizing Nibbana, Arahantship is really that point where those other tendencies of desire and aversion and confusion are gone. So I feel like, yeah, the body's aging, the mind's not aging. I can, as long as I can use this body down to the last breath, down to the last conscious moment through the brain, I can make progress with clarifying, purifying the mind, realizing the truth of the way things are. And then after the mind separates from the body, my intention to continue that work, whatever is left that needs to be done, and my aditan, my um, determination to be an, a bhikkhuni for every lifetime until I realize Nibbana, that has ver is very likely to continue to continue to um, evoke and invite circumstances to support that. That's what I think. Wow. That was a lovely birthday reflection and life reflection, Aya. And I um, had two questions that kind of branch from there. One is, um, and perhaps this is the one we can lean into, I know you both have had to hold this dichotomy of timelessness and timeliness, um, you know, holding your core of monastic practice and starting Karuna Buddhist Vihara and all the bridge building and hut building and uh, other building that that entails. And um, I know that this is a, a dynamic you both are, you know, working to skillfully balance and I wondered if you you had reflections. I you just came out of uh, I Santusika, You just came out of a three month, I believe, uh, silent retreat, and I'm curious about any gems you have uh, for us from that time of quiet. Um, and then I Chitanand, I know in the meantime you were kind of holding down the fort at Karuna Buddhist Vihara, and I'd be curious about you know insights you had uh, about working in the realm of time and you know how you kept your center through that. And this will be relevant for Ajin Kovilo and I as we try our best to do the same. It's a lot of words, sorry. <clears throat> okay. So for me, the three month retreat was really um, like a landmark, like a, like a watershed moment because I hadn't, haven't had that opportunity in 15 years and in only once before that in, um, at Chitters when I lived there through the winter time. 
And um, it was wonderful because it also came at a time when we were just finishing our third Kuti and, and we feel like, okay, that's enough um, for a while, enough. So it's like really turning our attention to practice. I don't just mean meditation, but of course, um, being able to get as much meditation time in as we can, given the, all the other things that we have to do, but also bringing things to a point where you can stop for a while and not think about it as an ongoing building project to build a monastery because the monastery is never finished. I don't, uh, you know, they, they just, they, you keep building. Um, we can always have more space for people and more, give more of our time. And, you know, so it is necessary, like you say, to find some balance and to keep our priorities clear and let our priorities change as the conditions allow. It's like now I'm living in a Kuti for the first time and it's a game changer. It is just so great to be not in a building where people are coming and going and, and there's so much other stuff going on and um, to have that space and to um, give that, really support that with time um, really, really helps. So I just think, you know, it's taken a while. I don't think it'll take the two of you as long to kind of come to a plateau where you've got enough facilities. And I say that because, you know, it, it's, it's um, frankly a little easier when you're guys <laughs> because there's a, there's a um, more of a, uh, what do I want to say, um, foundation, I think, available through the conditioning of people to support men monks in, in monasteries. And I'm not complaining because I feel like we have um, such wonderful support uh, from our beautiful community and, uh, and, and people. But to you know, just notice where, how, how much the first phase needs and then where, are the, and where there's enough for some period of time and take that time. That's my thought. No. Th thank you. That was... Holding the fort. Yeah. I lost my voice last week, so it's still not very, can you, you can hear okay though, right? It's okay. Yeah. okay. <clears throat> so I think the main thing was um, not wanting to waste time so much. It, it's really clear how valuable time is when you don't have that much of it or when you feel like you don't have that much of it. And it was it was fun playing with like using everything as practice. So when we went to go see Ajahn Gunha a few years ago, he was saying that, well, two hours of meditation a day is enough for a monastic to get enlightened. All you really need is two good solid hours a day and the rest of the time you should be working like crazy. <laughs> work, 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 until you, you know, drop, basically, but with, with sati and samadhi and panya going. Or, and that's not quite it, was it? Is it? Is that what he said? Yeah, sati, yeah. sati, samadhi, and panya? Mm -hmm. Was it? Yep. Yeah. Anyway, 
So I was into the sati part because that was the easy one and <laughs> for going all day long. Um, but it was it was good to to practice with that because I don't even really like anymore the idea of holding down the fort. It makes it sound like there's some kind of battle coming. And <laughs> it was more it's more like just uh, I don't know what carry the basket. I don't know something more innocuous. <laughs> less pugilistic sounding somehow I don't know <laughs> but, but it, it wasn't it wasn't um that hard really if you could just have the sati going and with the with the aspect of remembering in there in the word sati you know like oh yeah I could be not stressed out about this thing I have to do right now <laughs> yeah. I could just do the thing and whatever happens it's okay you know I'll do my best and like focus on the thing so I think that was the big, the biggest kind of takeaway for me is like, don't, don't waste time, use everything for practice and two hours of meditation is enough a day. Yay. <laughs> Cause sometimes it's like, if, if that's all you get, what's the problem? I mean, I know plenty of our lay folks who meditate two hours a day, every day yeah. and, and, and work and work and it's, doing great for their lives. So it's, it's kind of like, hmm, I don't need to worry about this. I don't need to complain about it or, or feel like I'm slacking as a monastic if I'm not sitting four or five hours a day mm. or something, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. Cause I can use the rest of the time for Sati Samadhi and Panya and all the other beautiful aspects of the path you can come up with during the day. Oh, how can I look at this with compassion or how can I look at this with more loving kindness and, you know, it's it's a whole eightfold path. It's not just the meditation is is king kind of idea. So you can do it. I'm not worried about you too. <laughs> it, it resonates well with. Uh, I remember uh, Ayasen Tusika quoting one of Longpur Ganha's other phrases, and this might be related, but just do it. Do everything as a gift. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah, and Ajahn Ganha just lives that so well. I mean whether it's Ajahn Ganha or both of your answers. I love yours as well. And it's, but they're different. And it, it reminds me of um, this really beautiful, one of my, well, I've got a lot of favorite suttas, but Majjhima Nikaya number 32, the Maha Gosinga Sutta, where you've got all of these great disciples, um, Sariputra, Ananda, Maha Moggallana, Anuruddha, and they all go door to door. They're all staying in the same monastery and they go to door to door and they say, come on out, we're gonna, we're gonna have a Dhamma talk. And then they ask one another, they say, the Gosinga solitary wood is delightful. The night is moonlit. The solitaries are all in blossom and heavenly scents seem to be floating in the air. What kind of practitioner could illuminate the Gosinga solitary wood? And then each of them take turns saying what their ideal monastic would be. And it's kind of descriptions of themselves like Sariputra talks about one with wisdom and Mahamogalana's psychic powers, but I love this question and I'm curious how each of you would answer that. Like what kind of bhikkhuni could illuminate the Gosinga solitary wood? I think we should answer it for each other, <laughs> not for ourselves. Can we do that? That's easy. easy that? Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> because I think the kind of bhikkhuni that can illuminate the uh, redwood forests at the KBV Hermitage <laughs> is um, is one that really 
isn't afraid to dive in to whatever it is that's wholesome and isn't afraid to identify and um, set aside the unwholesome. And in that lack of fear and trepidation, there's an immediate um, picking up of whatever task there is, whether it's ever been done before or not uh, by her and uh, doing it like um, the wall needed to be the the new wood stove was heating up the wall too much um and this all happened while i was away this this vasa yeah. and so this bikuni here um ripped out the wall and put in a cement board and put up tile and grouted it all and did it all herself and she never had done anything like that before or building the shrine that's outdoor shrine with our beautiful gifted Buddha statue on it. And she's like, let's have a mosaic here. And she made a mosaic for the first time in her life. Just, you know, and this, this happens again and again and again and again. And then doing those things with love and mindfulness and at the same time, helping people understand, you know, what they can do at the Vihara and at the same time seeing how we can improve. And I think that, oh, and, and the special um, connection with discussions with the Davis doesn't hurt. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, the kind of pakuni that can illuminate our redwood forest with the Dhamma. <laughs> I think patience is, is a big one. Having a lot of patience for mm, like the, the problems that come up or trying to understand aspects of Dhamma and explain them or spending time with people um, when they really need advice or, or just the, the kindness and the compassion. Um, so patience is really a, a, an important quality and wisdom of course how to help people <laughs> how to solve the practical problems all of those things and the ability to change that like you were talking about seeing the unwholesome habits or patterns and actually being able to change them like pretty quickly seeing something that oh yeah that's not good and then just working with the mind so that it doesn't happen anymore. Even if the impulse is there or it takes a few tries, having that patience with yourself too, to be able to be like, yep, I goofed up next time. And then just being diligent about it and being able to, and I find that to be a really rare quality. It doesn't sound like much, but when you live with people over time and you, you know who can do that and who can't, I don't know anybody better at doing this than I said, Jessica. So I think that's what I would say. Is that long enough? I don't talk much. It's long enough. It's a great answer. Okay. And um, <coughs> when you speak about uh, this quality of suvacha, like being softer, um, easy to speak to and change um, or seeing the unwholesome and correcting and the teachings the Buddha gives on those uh, 
that encouragement is some of those passages are some of my favorite. And I know both of you um, uh, engage in and lead regular sutta study um, on Wednesday evenings, actually at 730. Um, and I'm curious if both of you had a teaching from the suttas, uh, one or two um, that have really rung in your mind and hearts over these years as bhikkhunis and as monastics, like words that just the ones that keep on echoing and coming up, um, even small phrases. Hmm. <laughs> it's okay. It's not, it doesn't have to be a direct quote. <laughs> so and, I can really uh, resonate with that. I have many favorite suttas. <laughs> I really, really do. <coughs> Yeah. There's been one recently that has been kind of stood out a bit more. Well, just recently we were looking at the um, Upikilesa Sutta in the Majjhima And what has been so interesting about that is the kind of ongoing development of <clears throat> taking that more, taking that deeper, which what I what I feel um, encouraged by is understanding the part where the Buddha says he saw the problem with doubt arising during meditation and how that took him out of immersion, and then he decided that he was gonna not have doubt arise again. <laughs> and he goes through every one of the ubiquitouses in the same way. Oh, then drowsiness is not going to arise again, or um, I'm not going to lose focus again, or, you know, just, and that, and, and this actually came from Ajahn Brahmali when I was, when I was in Australia, and he pointed out that that is really a suggestion given to the mind. It's not like you have to, you know, <clears throat> kind of beat it out of yourself or, or somehow go through some extraordinary um, purification for it to not happen again. It's, it's when you sit down and you go, okay, now train the mindfulness. You just drop that suggestion into the mind, not to allow doubt to take up, to take root and not to lose focus and so on. And then to start to, to really work with, uh, this in meditation, <clears throat> excuse me, and see, you know, that it's very much like um, reminding yourself what time you wake up, want to wake up in the morning before you go to sleep, and then finding that, yeah, it's pretty standard that you wake up about 10 minutes before the time, and, and this is the same effect, where you just plant a suggestion in the mind, and the mind uses the the sati, the, the mindfulness to follow it. And I I really appreciate that. It's like, I think for me, the, the, the main teaching probably, given my character, given my conditioning, is to, to try but not try so hard that you're working against progress and to not, not beat myself up. To 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 go softly and firmly, consistently, and lovingly, and that that's what really makes it work. 
Mm-hmm. Right, Chitananda, any thoughts or? Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> well, now, now I'm thinking about hers. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to call you back when we I have some. They're going to get us later. I have some questions and thoughts of idea of how you can just, oh, suggest this to your mind and have it happen. <laughs> yes, so, so cool. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it takes kind of a. This is the Buddha talking about his own mind and how that works. Mm. And I think it does take a strength of mind, a certain strength of mind to have that function that maybe I just don't have built up yet. <laughs> but we'll see. Can I actually, oh, sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, well, well, just to s- sort of piggyback on that suggestion of uh, dropping something into the mind. Briefly, I Santusika, you mentioned a determination you've made, which really echoes Tenzin Palmo's. Um, we interviewed recently about being, if you are reborn, um, being reborn as a bhikkhuni every life, well, not straight out of the hospital, <laughs> I'm assuming, but you know, becoming a bhikkhuni in every life to come. Um, would you speak to that aspiration and its reason? And if others have an aspiration for their death and their rebirth, how, how does one go about making that? And what's, what's a good aspiration? Well, for me, that aspiration is so um, natural. Uh, it's uh, the way that faith has developed in the Buddha and Dhamma and Sangha and the way that I feel the vehicle of um, the monastic life is so incredibly valuable, so incredibly um, such a great guide and support and protection. And it's like I know that <clears throat> I'll never disrobe and I'll always want to be a bhikkhuni. And when I told my son that, um, I think he might have still been Ajahn Guna Widow at the time before he left the robes. And he said, Well, you know, you might be born male. Don't you don't uh, eliminate that possibility, but, and I know, you know, I, I really, I really would like to come back in the female form again and again and, and in robes as soon as possible. And I, I do see other people who seem to have made such a determination in previous lives. And I think, it's very likely that Aya Chitananda did because, you know, she woke up one morning when she was about 19 and said, I think it's time to go to a monastery. And that had not occurred to her before. <laughs> and, you know, there are other people who also seem, I mean, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi told me about the first time he saw a monk walking across campus when he was in college. And, and it was just this immediate dry, you know, it's like, there's definitely stuff going on in previous <coughs> lifetimes that brings you know us into a situation where we just know we want to go in that direction, and so I I feel like it's it's something that will just happen based on our determination, and the determination isn't with grasping. You have to let it go. You have to just hold it in your heart and know that this is the direction you want to travel and then let go of all attachment to it. 
And that seems to be the way things work. And, um, and I feel like, you know, my, that aspiration is pretty in a way specific, but it doesn't say anything about, you know, where, um, you know, or any of that. And it is good to maybe make a determination that to be reborn in a place where you can practice the Dhamma. Um, you know, I really like the, the chant of, um, with the aspirations in it to have an upright mind and, and practice Dhamma and it be in a place where other people practice Dhamma. And, you know, that kind of, that kind of, uh, a wish, you know, looking at the best things that you've experienced so far in life and to, you know, plant that seed in the mind that says, I want to. I want this to be part of the situation I find myself in wherever I go. Gosh, conversations like this are, are so useful. I mean, you read a sutta like the reappearance by aspiration sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, and you've got the words, you say, one could if they wanted to, if they've got the right amount of virtue and generosity, et cetera, reappear somewhere. But you talking about it, you know, is a great, model for other people these days. How does someone actually live that um, so and incline in that direction? So yeah, wonderful perspectives. Um, I think we'll open it up to questions from the, the audience, if that's okay. Um, awesome. So we got a lot, a lot of people just saying, great conversation. This is awesome. Sila Samadhi Panya. <laughs> um, but here's the first question. Um, any advice on how to maintain mindfulness while doing work? It seems like they often feel like oil and water. I think that's yours. Oh. I don't know. I'm, I'm sticking to it with the remembering part of sati. That aspect of the word is like actually remembering, oh, yeah, I want to be mindful. I don't want to be thinking about, you know, um, this, this project I have to do while I'm washing the dishes. I just want to be washing the dishes and focus on that. It's, it's good for peace of mind and for the task at hand. And it keeps the mind um, calmer and more centered from when you have to go sit on the cushion and meditate. So it's, it's reminding yourself. And you can put little like sticky notes on your computer screen or you can put notes on your bathroom window, your bathroom mirror or whatever, little things, or, you know, every time you go to the bathroom, it's a, it's a little placeholder for you. Oh yeah. Mindfulness. Okay. Every time there's like a change in your activity, it's, it's a good time to insert that idea of, okay, I want to be mindful when I do this new thing now. So I think things like that for me kind of, kind of worked when I had a regular laid person kind of job. And I think it still works for me now, just having, you know, um, making up your own things that work for you is important. Just like the rest of, of Buddhist practice really is, it's so personal. You do have to come up with your own little tricks and see what works and what doesn't. So, yeah, take a stab at it. Let me know how it goes, because I might steal some of your tips. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, you want to say anything? Well, I was just thinking about you and the way you work. <coughs> and what I noticed too is 
I think part of your mindfulness is mindfulness around being kind. Ooh. And you've been doing it for so long that I feel like it's feel, it must feel automatic, but you come back to kindness so often oh. that I think that that is very key in keeping your mindfulness mm-hmm. at the kindness and the mindfulness work together. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful answer. Um, we have a comment. <laughs> Having served the eyes at the monastery, I can say they taught me to practice every moment in and out of meditation. Little Anjali emoji. Mm. <laughs> I saw Ayatananda sitting on a big branch of a redwood tree and chopping the branches. She is so fearless. <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> 79 p.m. Wednesday meditation in Sutta study. Ah, I did get that wrong. We wanted to mention that, um, as many of you know, some of our, our Zoom session goes until 7.30, but um, either you can jump straight onto the Aya's uh, Sutta study, um, but if you do attend Clear Mountains, um, the Aya's wanted people to know that they can jump on the Sutta study at any point, and the first 30 minutes are meditation. Um, Actually, so- the first whole hour. Oh, okay. Chanting and meditation, so you're welcome to come at eight, um, or any time and just join in anytime. So make a Dharma marathon out of Wednesdays. Just uh, We would really want to encourage this community to kind of uh, really take advantage of the wisdom there in the Sutta study. Um, Deborah's saying, I'm grateful for the beautiful, warm, dedicated community built in the Bay Area. And let's get to a question. There's so much praise here. Okay, Landon. I would love to hear more. Is the chitta truly eternal? <laughs> Speaking of questions, how does that understanding that the mind isn't aging square with impermanence? Thank you so much. Such a wonderful conversation. This is a very important question because if the chitta is outside of time, then it isn't eternal or impermanent. And I really think this squares with what the Buddha and Venerable Sariputta, you know, when they get to that point where, you know, people want to know what happens to uh, to Tagata after he dies, what happens to the Arahant after they die. And there's like, there, there is, there, it just doesn't apply. And, and the reason it doesn't apply is that chitta is not a thing. The chitta is not a self. Um, the chit is a process. It's a verb. It's not a noun. We, uh, in our language, we, we, we call it something and then it makes it in, seem like it's a thing, but it's not a thing. It's not a thing. <laughs> Don't make it a thing. <laughs> make it a thing. Don't think we own it or that we um, are it or that it can be something we are at all. You know, that, and, and so the, this chitta element maybe that even makes it a thing it's, the langu- language is just so inadequate here but that this if this is if this is outside of time and we can understand it through meditation but we can't understand it through logic and this is what the buddha said over and over again you can't get to to understanding the real nature of things through reasoning. We need to use reasoning to gather as much of it as we can from what the Buddha says. There's a tremendous amount that's practical, observable in normal consciousness, consciousness, but 
to really understand something outside of time, we have to allow the mind to relax enough to go to that space. Mm. So like if the, so if, if the, the mind is an aging instance, like the process, a process doesn't really age, right? And then like, if the process stops, that's the impermanent part, right? It's just like, it goes still, it stops running in the same way. But it doesn't stop in a nihilistic no, ending no. way. It's just like, it's, it's just yeah. still. I love that the Buddha didn't bother trying to answer this question for people because it really doesn't matter. <laughs> like it's it's interesting and it's fun and we love to play with these things and that's part of why we're stuck here so i like the idea of just practicing and seeing for yourself and then you won't have the question like like the ajahn would say to you like if you're asking this question you're still confused just go practice and i like that part about like let's just go practice <laughs> yeah yeah and, and whenever we're veering in the direction of eternalism or we think someone who's well down the path is saying that something's eternalism. There's no way that's going to be the case. They know that the things of our um, perception and understanding are not eternal. And we also know that if we veer towards nihilism, we're also going to be off the track. So just hold it. lightly and go into it and see for yourself. So this next next question kind of, it either dovetails or is undercut by your answer there, but it definitely relates what you just said to this question of reappearance by aspiration. So mm -hmm. here Holly asks, so if the chitta is outside of time, then an aspiration to be able to ordain a next life it is the chitta that carries the aspiration forward in time? Yes? Question mark? This is also a very good question. And I think of it more as there, there is that, um, that consciousness that continues because there's still unfinished business. There's still kama. We haven't gone still. And the push of that energy, that that craving to be reborn, to finish that business, that's what pushes us on to the next life. And the, I would say that the aspiration exists within the chitta, but it's it's not the chitta. And it's it's like, okay, so all of this stuff, this karma that it, you know, results of my actions and the aspiration and um you know, all of these, these things, this, this desire to complete something that is not yet completed or not yet understood, um, that all moves us in that direction. But, you know, it's, it's trying to get our, um, not just get our mind around, like you said, we can't really get our mind around this. Like if you see in meditation that there, that time is just a convention then come back to normal consciousness. You can't make sense of it. You know it's true, but you can't make sense of it. You can't explain it, really. Yes. So I would I would hold the chitta in that kind of way, that 
it's, you know, not to, not to think um, this is, is part of the khandas. I mean, I know that's the commentarial view is that this, everything fits into the khandas and that's where, um, you know, some of the masters deviate from the traditional perspective and I've kind of been taught to not hold the commentary as high as I would the suttas and to hold direct experience of those who are practicing so well um, with a lot of respect. Thank you, Aya. Um, I know we have to let you go now and we all have to jump, jump off. Um, I did have one final question um, and uh, people uh, can feel free to, to join the Zoom right now if they'd like, but uh, maybe if we just have another minute or two. Um, we have community a community member who recently lost her mother and we have others who've, you know, death is far more present in people's lives than I think we realize. What, what advice would you have for someone grieving? Like um, in terms of how do they honor a death? Is there a ritual you'd recommend or some way of remembering um, for people in that situation? I know it's a strange ending question, but it's also relevant. Um, yeah, it's very relevant. I think any kind of um, ritual that feels meaningful for honoring the person and your relationship and your memories of them is great. I think it's important to feel what you feel without um, feeling bad about it, but also don't cling to the feelings. Know that they are they are also a process and they keep changing. And if if you find you're you're not feeling the same way, I mean, I know I've known people who feel like, wow, if I'm not just just overwhelmed with sadness, I must not have cared enough or something. <laughs> don't think like that really see the feelings as like weather passing through and, and to, to respect them and, and observe them, but don't cling to them. And um, there's no magic in feeling bad. The Buddha said, you don't do the person who's departed any good by being sad. Um, so don't try to be sad, try to remember the good things and try to do the things that actually can um, help them. Like, uh, dedicating your practice to them, um, you know, doing good things and, and sharing the merit with them. And, you know, that kind of encouragement for them to have uh, good, con good conditions in their next, in their next life and um, all the support that they need to uh, develop further and be happy and fully safe um, in in their in their lives until they're completely at peace. Thank you, Ayas. And um, we do have to move on to our Zoom session. Ajin Kovilo has pasted the link into the chat. If you can't see it there, feel free to go to clearmountainmonastery.org. And on the Wednesday evening event listing, you'll find the link to the Zoom where we usually have a more intimate discussion for 45 minutes. But um, if you... Uh, also in the future would like to join the Aya Sutta study that just is on their Karuna, Karuna Buddhist Vihara website. Uh, I believe it's uh, karunabv.org. And um, just to say the Ayas will be probably visiting us June 22nd and 23rd after their Cloud Mountain retreat. We're so delighted to have you both here. And 
just to say um, happy birthday from our community. We are so blessed to have you as sisters and so grateful for your friendship and guidance. Um, Ajin Kovilo? Balloons. So many balloons. <laughs> yeah. So great to see you both and can't wait to see you in person. So have a good evening. Yeah, thank, yeah, thank, thank you, you both. It's great to see you too. And we look forward to visiting. <laughs>